0: This is Curious City editor Alexandra Solomon. As my colleague Jesse Dukes mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the Curious City team has been trying to keep on top of your questions about the coronavirus. And we've been doing things a little differently with the podcast. But this week is Passover, a holiday that many Jewish people here in Chicago and around the world are celebrating right now. Passover recalls a particular moment in Jewish history, The Exodus of the Ancient Israelites from Slavery in Egypt to Freedom. So we thought it would be nice to bring you a story about the history of Chicago's Jewish community. A story from our archive that explores the tension between assimilation and tradition. And what it means to overcome discrimination.
1: If you look closely at dozens of old buildings across Chicago, you'll find symbols of Judaism. Stars of David or Hebrew letters etched into the walls. But these buildings aren't Jewish institutions, at least, not anymore. I'm WBEZ producer Jason Mark. On this edition of Curious City, we're answering a question we got from Elias Saltz about the history of Chicago's Jewish community. He wants to know, where were the largest Jewish neighborhoods, what were they like, and where did they go? The answer, it turns out, tells a story about the struggle between assimilation and maintaining traditions, how economic power changes a community, and what it means to overcome discrimination. The first Jews came to Chicago from Germany soon after the city was founded in the 1830s. But the largest group of Jews came from Eastern Europe in the 1880s, and that's where this story begins. Now, we can't give you the whole brisket, so we're going to break this down into a matzo ball-sized package, following the typical migration pattern of the Eastern European Jewish community through the lens of a single synagogue. That synagogue is Kehilath Israel Nusach Safard, or Kins. The Kins congregation moved three different times, mirroring the way the community at large moved across the city. To find out why, I hook up with a man known as the Dean of Jewish Chicago Research.
2: My name is Irving Cutler. I'm a retired professor of urban geography and the author of a number of books on the Jews of Chicago. And I've given a lot of bus
1: and boat tours of the area. Cutler's being modest. The 95-year-old has written the definitive books on the Jews of Chicago, is a founder of the Jewish Historical Society, and has guided hundreds of tours across the city. I meet Dr. Cutler at the legendary Manny's Coffee Shop in Deli. It's been serving up heaping plates of Jewish soul food for more than 75 years. And it's right next to the neighborhood where Kins got its start, what was known as Maxwell Street. At its peak, around 50,000 Eastern European Jews lived around Maxwell Street. The area had already been home to Germans, Bohemians, and Irish.
2: So it was sort of a, a used, rundown neighborhood when the Jews came. And it was a very crowded uh, area with a uh, few recreation facilities, uh, sometimes buildings behind buildings in the backyard. So it wasn't the, the best of neighborhoods, actually.
1: Imagine crowded tenements, peddlers with push carts hawking food and wares in the street, tiny shops with Yiddish signs in the windows. This was Maxwell Street, and this was where Jews built a community through institutions.
2: So they built uh, the Chicago Hebrew Institute, a community center, uh, Hebrew schools, uh, sort of a manual training school, and they built these 40 synagogues here. With one exception on the fringe, which was Reform, the others were all orthodox. But most of them were very small. Uh, Many of them were in a rabbi's house. And it became a a vibrant community.
1: But by the 1920s, the peddlers and shopkeepers who worshipped at these small synagogues that became kins had saved enough to move out of the crowded conditions on Maxwell Street. Some headed to Wicker Park, Logan Square, Bucktown, and even as far north as Edgewater. But the majority moved straight west to North Lawndale. Affectionately known as the GVS, or Great Vest Side, this neighborhood became the new home for Kins. This is where my mom and her family grew up, at the corner of Spalding and Lexington. North Lawndale may have only been a few miles west, but the two-and-three flats, wide boulevards, and huge parks felt like a different world compared to the cramped, dirty conditions on Maxwell Street.
2: And uh, Douglas and Garfield Park had lagoons. You could rent rowboats for a quarter of an hour. You could go ice skating. Uh, There were ball fields there. And on hot summer nights before air conditioning... Uh, You'd take your pillows and you'd go sleeping in these parks. And you had no fear in those days. You had a lot of company there. I slept many a night in Douglas Park.
1: By the 1930s, Lawndale was known around Chicago as Little Jerusalem. Roosevelt Road was the main commercial strip. To give you a sense of how hopping it was, here's some stats. There were 20 Jewish restaurants, 11 kosher butcher shops, 8 Jewish bakeries, 6 movie theaters, and 4 Jewish bookstores. The Jewish People's Institute on Douglas Boulevard hosted thousands of folks every week with its classes, gym, pool, library, Jewish museum, and a restaurant called Blintzes. During the summer, JPI even treated dancers to a live band on the roof in what Dr. Cutler calls the original J-Date. And they built a whopping 70 synagogues in the neighborhood, many of them incredibly large and ornate. A few of them still remain. One of them was Kins. It's now home to the Greater Galilee Baptist Church.
2: This was one of the, the nicer ones. And oh. this incidentally used to be known as the Laundryman's Synagogue because a lot of the founders were laundrymen. There was a synagogue further south, a few blocks. Anche Motula, which was known as the Carpenter Men's Synagogue because many of the founders were carpenters.
1: The first thing I notice when I walk into the sanctuary is a huge Jewish star above the pulpit and the hundreds of stars carved into the balcony and into the sides of the pews that fill the room. Sister Mary Coleman gave us the tour. She's a parishioner who's worked there for 15 years.
2: We love coming here. Yeah, We love our church.
1: And she let us in on an interesting twist of fate.
2: This church came from Maxwell Street. They came to this particular location in 1958. But before that, this church was located on Maxwell Street, 14th Street, somewhere down around the Maxwell Street area.
1: So when the Jews left Maxwell Street, Greater Galilee moved in. And when the Jews left North Lawndale, Greater Galilee moved in again. But more than a coincidence, it's a commentary on the city's redlining practices, those laws and informal agreements that said where Jews and blacks could and couldn't live. Jewish Chicagoans were able to break those barriers earlier than the black community as they gained more economic power and acceptance through assimilation. But getting back to life in Jewish North Lawndale, the neighborhood reached its apex of population and prosperity in the early 1940s. So if things were so good there, why leave? The movement out started after World War II.
2: The veterans came home. They had low interest loans to buy homes. And uh, one of the drawbacks of Lawndale, although it was a very nice neighborhood, there were hardly any single family homes. And the trend after World War II was not only for Jews, but other groups to have a home of their own and areas were opening up that were restricted to the Jews before. And you had expressways opening up the suburban areas, so you started having uh, the Jews moving out.
1: For a people who weren't allowed to own land in the old country, face quotas or outright denials of admission to many colleges and professions in America, the combination of the GI Bill, a booming economy, and less restrictions against Jews proved too tempting. By the mid-1950s, Jewish North Lawndale was a memory. And remember one of those questions we started with, where did they go? The answer is, they headed north this time, to Rogers Park. And like Kins had done before, the synagogue packed up its most sacred objects and followed the community. It relocated to what we now call West Rogers Park. It was almost as if Roosevelt Road was picked up and dropped down onto Devon Avenue. From high-end clothing stores to fishmongers, Jewish businesses crowded both sides of Devon all the way east to the lake. The whole neighborhood was suddenly and vibrantly Jewish. Rabbi Leonard Metanke has led kins for nearly a quarter century. In the 60s, in the afternoon Hebrew school, there were a thousand students. They had to learn in shifts because there wasn't enough space In the Hebrew school building. Like Maxwell Street in North Lawndale, the heyday of Jewish Rogers Park lasted about 30 years. The population was solidly middle class and ritually diverse, practicing the various denominations of Judaism from Orthodox to Reform. By the mid 80s, new groups of immigrants, primarily South Asians, came to West Rogers Park in search of their American dream. Many Jewish kids who grew up there wandered their way to suburbs like Buffalo Grove, Northbrook, and Deerfield. And pockets of Jewish life can be found in other neighborhoods across Chicago. But unlike our first two stops on this journey, West Rogers Park still has a vibrant and growing Jewish community with 40 synagogues. That's because a good number of people have either held on to or have rediscovered the Orthodox Judaism practiced by their great-grandparents when they first arrived on Maxwell Street. walking around the neighborhood, you start to see people wearing a kind of uniform, white shirts and black pants for bearded men in velvet kipot or skull caps, women with their hair covered, wearing ankle-length skirts and long sleeves. Rabbi Matenki says that for the Kins community, success includes being part of the larger world while reclaiming the Jewish practices that have often been set aside in the name of fitting in. I believe what really has kept The Jewish people together are the traditions and the uniquenesses of the Jewish people and of the Jewish faith. And so the more we look to imitate others, the more we lose a part of who we are. Matenki says the way the neighborhood is now set up makes it possible for the community to follow these Orthodox Jewish traditions. For example, Orthodox Jews don't drive on the Sabbath, so you need to be able to walk to the synagogue. There's also an A-roof, a defined boundary that covers an entire area or neighborhood. In this area, religious Jews, who are not supposed to carry anything during the Sabbath, are able to carry items within this boundary. And that's why Matanke believes that unlike Maxwell Street and North Lawndale, the Jews living here in West Rogers Park are here to stay. Rabbi Matanke
0: mentioned the importance of traditions in the Jewish community. And Passover, which is the most celebrated holiday by American Jews, is steeped in traditions. Those, in theory, don't change. And there's one that recalls the 10 plagues, which miraculously helped the ancient Jews leave Egypt. These ancient plagues included things like water turning to blood and locusts. And it's hard not to think about COVID-19 when we're calling this part of the Passover story. So I decided to call up my own rabbi, Seth Limmer of Chicago Sinai Congregation, to find out how he makes sense of all this.
3: Alexandra, I've been thinking about this question a lot. Jewish history has seen worse conditions for celebrating Passover than the current age of COVID-19. Most recently, 80 years ago, during the Nazi regime. What's interesting about the Seder, for all the ways it tries to have us experience the Exodus for ourselves, is that the Haggadah is not exclusively focused on our own suffering. We diminish the wine in our cups of joy, taking out ten drops to commemorate the sufferings of the Egyptians during the ten plagues. Even when recalling our own story, we need to remain sensitive to the suffering of others, to be reminded of our common humanity and thereby to rededicate ourselves to the common cause of repairing our world. Being reminded of this lesson during our coronavirus sheltering in place should not only put the difficulty of our isolation in perspective, but should also make us especially attentive to those vulnerable communities even more ravaged by COVID than are we. The lessons of Passover cry out to be applied today to take care of the needs of the most vulnerable and all who suffer the effects of coronavirus disproportionately.
0: Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation. Our synagogue story originally ran in 2018. Jason Mark was the reporter. Thanks to Elias Saltz for the question that inspired it. I'm Alexandra Solomon.